And that's kind of what the approach for Knock at the Cabin is. Just like, that's us in the cabin wondering, yeah. you know, is this... That's me in the corner. <laughs> that's me in the cabin. That's me tied to a chair with Dave Bautista. Um, yeah, yeah. Dude, like, get his ass. Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth is, guys, starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? You crown them, but they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic, a theme for the week, and the other two hosts are then tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic play with the topic. I was up this week. It was my turn to pick the topic. Savvy listeners would know that, you know, we've been we've been trying to mellow out the last couple episodes. You know, we've we've been we've been chilling and uh we've had a lot of nice vibes, some very pleasant movies, whether it be romantic comedies or movies about trains. <laughs> um and so I felt like we needed to we needed to um get our edge back here a little bit, you know, maybe we were getting a little soft. So I thought, uh, what better way to do that than send us to the front, specifically the trenches of World War I. Um, I think I also might have mentioned last week that in part, this topic has been on my mind due to the, I would say, rather surprising recent successes of the new German language version of All Quiet on the Western Front uh, that recently just swept the BAFTAs. And it's been picking up sort of, you know, talk and steam, whatever that's worth in this award season. And I've had a lot of my students like coming in and, and asking me about it and bringing it up and wanting to chat. And, and um, you know, for me, I mean, I don't really want to just sit here and talk about that movie. I don't think either of you have seen it, right? Neither of you have seen no. it? Yeah. Um, it's probably worth checking out, I would say, um, but I didn't think it was a, an amazing film, and especially because I've seen quite a few excellent films covering the First World War, the Great War, the war to end all wars. So I was offering my students some alternative titles that they could check out, and I thought, well, why not this week on the pod dive into some other possible titles for people who are perhaps interested in looking at more cinematic renditions of that horrible, horrible conflict. People who are World War I curious. Yeah, yeah. World War I curious, folks. We got you covered. Um, so that's what I asked the boys to bring. Films depicting the Great War and 
thankfully, that's what they brought. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, we got two movies uh, with just that as the subject matter, Uh, one of which I had seen before and I was um, a big fan of, thought it was an excellent film. The other one I hadn't seen, though it had been on my list for a long time. So I was very glad to revisit a film that, that I admire and uh, uh, experience one I hadn't seen before, but, but was, was very, um, was meaning to for a very long time. So I guess without further ado, because, you know, we're going to get into it big time. Um, let's bring out the films as we usually do on the podcast. We will start with the earlier of the two films, which belongs to my friend Ryan. Ryan, what did you bring us and the listeners this week? You've seen my movie before, right? That's the one yes. you've seen? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because that yeah. I would have been really been like blown away if you... <laughs> so I was just, okay, cool, great. Um, I had not seen the movie I picked. And that was one of the reasons I picked it and been on my list forever. And I guess one of the reasons I never got around to it is because I'm not a huge war cinema guy. I don't mind it, of course, but it's not something I actively seek out. But I have always been aesthetically very interested in the First World War. And I think it has been underutilized in cinema because it kind of gets obviously overshadowed by the defining uh, event of the 20th century, World War II. But I, you know, I've always found the OG pretty appealing when it comes to cinematic adaptations, but there are just so many I, I had never seen before. And when you announced the topic, I knew right away that I was most likely going to pick a silent film, primarily because I was just so fascinated at the thought of Picking a film when the war was still fresh in people's minds, the people that had made it and having made it before the next cataclysmic event in the 20th century, the next war that was, you know, right around the corner. So I thought I I definitely have to find something from that interim period. And I had a couple options from before 1920 that I ended up not going with because the film I ended up landing on was just a... It was too titanic of a work for me to continually have just not watched. And I also just thought it was kind of funny based on what I knew about it when I had like tossed the topic to you last week at the end. I had said, so Andy, are we going to fall in love again next week? And you were, your response was just absolutely not. (laughs) There's not a chance. And I thought, you know what? I am pretty sure that King Vidor's 1925 The Big Parade is kind of just a romantic comedy for the first half of it. So I couldn't resist. And that's where I went. So I chose, as I said, King Vidor's 1925 classic The Big Parade. The Big Parade begins in 1917, the spring of 1917 in America, and we're primarily following one man James Apperson, who I love in Dave Kerr's write-up of the film, calls a 
Long Island Lounge Lizard. He's a man that is pretty aloof. I think the first words that are attributed to him are, me working? Never. That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, his father is very rich. I can't remember. I think he owns a bank or something. And A when, mill. A mill. Okay, there you go. Yeah, and so when the war breaks out and all the men are starting to enlist, James doesn't want to be a part of it because he's a bit of a mama's boy and he, you know, he wants to be safe and his father is quite upset about this. But he gets enraptured at the patriotism he sees on the streets and he does eventually eventually enlist the first half of the film as i said pretty much the first 90 minutes of this film are essentially a romantic comedy and just a, a, a comedy of sorts as he's hanging out with um some fellow troops we get to meet bowl who is an irish bartender we get to meet slim who's a scandinavian construction worker that's like driving rivets into skyscrapers and those are the three guys that kind of like link up and then become our our anchor points throughout the rest of the film but in this front half when they arrive in the small french town of champion that's when he meets when james meets Melisande, this beautiful, lovely French woman, and they kind of ignite a little bit of a romance. Uh, even though he has a, a lover back home, he has a sweetheart uh, back in the States. And it's beautiful and it's lovely, and of course, eventually they are called to the front, and that's what the back half of this film is. And it is some of the most unbelievable combat footage of the era and just of all time, I would say. I was really struck by how apocalyptic of a vision it is. It's obviously a way that a lot of World War I movies are described, you know, having this kind of apocalyptic, hellish depiction of war. And this film was one of the most commercially successful silent films of all time. Some people call it the most commercially successful. I think there's some debate about, I don't know, something with the, the, the accounts of, you know, how well Birth of a Nation did and how well the Big Parade did. And... It's an amazing bit of trivia when you read that King Vidor in his original contract was supposed to be receiving um, an outrageous chunk of the net profits of this movie. And when the studio was realizing how well it was going to do, they bamboozled the guy, you know, they, they tricked him and they, they tried to like put too much weight on the expenses of the film. And then they were really downplaying how well it was projected to do. And he had sold a huge chunk of what he would have earned. And there's this amazing quote where he mentions, you know, yeah, well, I avoided being a millionaire so I could actually care about what I did with my camera and become, <laughs> become a more thoughtful artist. And, you know, that's king shit. There you go. That's King Vidor. This movie <laughs> is so good. <laughs> I almost don't even know what else to say. I was so moved by it. It blew me away. It... It's one of those movies that just, especially having never seen it before, it's, it had been a little while since I had encountered something and was just like, oh, this is just one of the best ones there is. You know, it's almost offensive that they make superhero movies when something like this could exist. <laughs> just the expressive power of the, the silent era filmmaking. And, and this film in particular, and this is something maybe we can talk about, is like, it's amazing how good it looks, and there is a story behind that, that this film is, is notable for being extremely well-preserved almost by accident. The original negative of this film survived. So the restoration, when you watch it, I mean, it just, it's like beamed, it doesn't feel like it's almost 100 years old. It, it mm -hmm. looks new, it's, it's a striking film, and it has some flourishes, even for the silent era, that I could not believe, especially some of these like long, shots and i'm i'm excited to talk about it it's a long film it's two and a half hours i'm sure we'll have 
plenty to say about it, but that is the big parade from 1925. Thank you, Ryan. Now, Marsh's film is the one that I had on my list that I had been meaning to see for a very long time. I'm a big fan of the the director and the screenwriter as well. And I should say the actors, some greats in there. So Marsh, why don't you tell us about what you brought? Well, I hadn't seen it either, which is uh, also why uh, why I chose it. And it was on my mind because in my heist films course, I teach Big Deal on Madonna Street by Mario Monticelli, uh, which is really the archetypal small-time crooks heist film uh, that focuses on a bunch of poor Italian guys as they, you know, uh, come up with the heist of a lifetime. But really, it's all about big joke. Uh, One of the great heist films, one of my favorite comedies. And so when I was thinking about what to pick, my mind immediately went to Monticelli, knowing that his follow-up to Big Deal on Madonna Street was indeed a World War I film. And that film is La Grande Guerra. The Great War from 1959. And, you know, Big Deal on Madonna Street was a huge hit. It was an international sensation. And so that really led to this film directly produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who basically gave Monticelli a a huge check and a free hand to concoct uh, this sort of epic, comic World War I film. Um, you know, fun fact, Gauntlet listeners may remember, uh, you know, when we covered, uh, No Greater Glory by Frank Borzaghi, uh, you know, Mario Monticelli's first film, which he produced independently, was an adaptation of the Hungarian novel, The Paul Street Boys. Oh, whoa. Oh, wow. So just a little wild sort of connection I discovered uh, between that. And that's also a film, of course, it's about children, but it's also about the First World War. Anyway, to get on with the story, uh, you know, as you were saying, Ryan, about sort of the uh, you wanting to pick a film that was close to the war, uh, what we have here is uh, a World War I film filtered through another experience of war, the Second World War, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Monticelli, of course, uh, born in to sort of fascist Italy, uh, he ended up serving, uh, you know, against his, against his will uh, in the Second World War. And so I think a lot of what you see in this film comes from, from that, from his own experiences with World War II, reflecting back on World War I. So there's a really interesting thing going on, I think, in general that I was sort of latching on to, like looking at it through through that lens. Um, and it really was, you know, according to him, uh, really to rewrite the uh, history of the First World War, because during the fascist era, World War I was an untouchable subject. It was a great event. Italy won Italy kicks ass. You cannot question that, that that happened, you know? Uh, And Monticelli was sitting there going like, 
obviously that's not true. Uh, let's address that in this like large scale uh, sort of uh, attempt to uh, wrestle history back from the fascists. And so uh, that's really what it is. It's a film that, uh, like the big parade, you know, starts with uh, soldiers at the lowest levels getting getting drafted or volunteering, and then uh, going through training and the barracks and and. All that <laughs> that ensues, uh, and the film centers on uh, really primarily two main characters in a cast of uh, a lot of characters. Uh, the two main ones are sort of polar opposites. We have Areste Iacovacci, played by Alberto Sordi, who is a Roman barber's assistant, uh, and at the beginning of the film, a bit of a nationalist blowhard. Uh, he's, you know, he, he appears to believe in, in all that stuff, Italy and, and blah, 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 right? On the other hand, we have Giovanni Busacca, played by the great Vittorio Gassman, uh, who is a Milanese ex-con. Uh, and you can tell uh, he's been in prison because he's citing Bakunin and anarchist theories, which is uh, stuff you would have encountered in prison uh, in, you know, the 1910s for sure. And he is this anti-authoritarian buffoon. Uh, and it was, you know, of course, Monticelli that turned him into a comic star. He was a Shakespearean actor in Italian theater and Big Deal in Madonna Street was his first comic role, and then he became this great titan of Italian comedy. And we see that here uh, as, again, like his counterpart, Oreste, uh, his idealism as this sort of criminal anarchist uh, also quickly gets shattered as the two of them will do anything to survive the Great War, uh, including volunteering for lots of zany assignments as long as they think it will remove them from the action. Um, yeah, I, I, I like this quite a bit. I, I, I really got into it, certainly by the end, you know, I think the film walks that tightrope between comedy and horror uh, quite well, uh, all things considered, and we will certainly get into it. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, The Great War. Thank you, Marsh. Yeah, big thank you, because as I said, uh, I had uh, long been been um, interested in, in checking this one out, so very, very pleased that you, you did select it. My pleasure. Yeah, and I, I would say... You know, same, well, also very pleased with your choice as well, Ryan, because I'd seen it a few years back and um, was was really impressed by it. And uh, just, you know, it, it sort of left my mind uh -huh. um, until you, you had selected it. And then I was like, oh, what a great fucking movie. <laughs> I was like, yeah, hell yeah, let's, let's, let's check it out again. Because I'd only seen it the one time. Uh, and it did not disappoint. And, and it was, yes, uh, every bit as, as impressive as I had remembered it. I guess, you know, there, there, there's actually a lot of similarities between mm -hmm. the two films. Oh, yeah. Uh, both quite long. Yeah, I mean, they're both well over you know, two hours, almost two and a half in, in both both cases. But aside from that, you know, I, I think that they both, um, they, they have a similar concern in general that's like guiding the films. Um, 
which is to say that World War I was a, a, a bad thing, a disaster, you know? And not all World War I films do. I think there's plenty that have, have at various points spun it as this sort of like, well, sure, there was a lot of blood and death and violence, but, but that sacrifice was, was worth it, was worth something, you know? And that's a trope you see in, of course, many war films. Um, but I think that both of these films do a great job of, of framing this war as, as what it truly was, a, a disaster for humanity. Um, but I guess to start with, you know, I think what's, what's interesting is that both of them in slightly different ways have at the opening uh, a very clear class consciousness that we're encountering as the wars begin. I was like, I had totally sort of forgotten the whole opening of the big parade, which uh-huh. is like this, this like interesting, uh, almost like treatise on America and on the classes, you know, setting the stage. And it's almost like this, this like brief city symphony that we kind of begin with in depicting the different sort of walks of life, the different classes that all are are sort of existing together in America. And it's like a warm-up for the crowd because he opens the crowd in the exact same way four years later with the cityscape montage and the depiction of all these different people, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. No, it's true, though. Just quickly, I was really struck by that, seeing this film for the first time, that the first images of the film are not human beings. It's industry. It's a it's a few shots before we see a face of a person. You know, we're talking about America thriving in industry at this moment, and that's when we pivot and start exploring these different classes of of workers. Yeah, <clears throat> these these men of the city that we're then introduced to mm-hmm. uh, the the working class, and I guess uh, to to Dave's to Dave Kerr's kind of way of looking at it, the the idle class. Yeah. You know, that that all are in this melting pot of of America. And of course, at first, we have no idea that these are going to be our our three main characters, but we do get this sort of cross section of of humanity. Um I and I again I think also with with La La Grande Guerra, uh La Grande Guerra. I think they say guerra in this in the Italian, don't they? Guerra, guerra. <laughs> um in the Great War, the Italian film, uh, again, we are like almost immediately treated to this, this uh, like a similar sort of class consciousness in that enlistment office. And our, our, our first character making it sort of very clear that, that he is there, but he's kind of there because he has to be there on a certain level. Even though they're all volunteering, we, we get the impression that this is almost like for him a poverty draft or perhaps even a... Uh, a parole draft. But yes, I think both films deal with this idea of of how war is perceived and and how war affects people in different economic stations of life. I like how you mention that you didn't, you know, we see these people at the beginning of the big parade, but we don't realize these are the people we're going to be following throughout the rest of the film. But it's kind of funny because in hindsight, now with, you know, 2023 eyes and uh, having a whole almost 100 years of 
cinema after this film we do know this because one of the things that's so exciting about the big parade is that right away you can tell oh this thing is just the template for so many other movies and i remember i was a little nervous where i was like man do i have time this week like a two and a half hour movie but then you pop the moment the big parade starts you're like oh i am totally content this is an epic this is one of those movies that's designed to carry you through and despite how long it is you honestly don't really want it to to end you know it's like the godfather where it doesn't feel like it's three <laughs> hours long you know it's just it's on tv you, you keep it on if the big parade's ever on tv <laughs> yeah i can imagine myself just keeping it on but it does have that epic scale and i think that the thing that i was so struck by with both of these films together is that they both have these hybrid genres in its design in the way that they're trying to appeal to a mass audience, but also capture something really specific. So as I said, with The Big Parade, it's like half romantic comedy, half war drama. And then The Great War is sprinkling in horror with lighthearted Italian comedy, and then also addressing things politically using both of those methods. And The Big Parade itself, too, is just like a smorgasbord of styles and the way it appeals to an audience. It's the kind of film that you know, before there were niches with filmmaking, it's it was designed with the sense of there has to be a little bit of something for everybody. Because again, this film is going to play at theaters for two years straight, you know, because mm -hmm. of how successful yeah. it is. But it's a mass audience that it has in mind. So both films are utilizing very different approaches at, simultaneously and then creating an interesting effect to give you a sense of what is lost when the horror does arrive because we are seeing glimpses of humanity and beauty throughout. I mean, and we should also add, I think for the big parade, melodrama is also, I think, kind of the one of the overriding mm -hmm. forces, right? Which is that, you know, romantic melodrama that also accommodates a lot of comedy. Uh, we get with the, you know, the war buddies, a lot of like very low brow slapstick. Uh, mm -hmm. And then with, you know, Jim and Melisandre, it's like we get a little more sophisticated light comedy, romantic comedy, right? It really is like, shifting its its tone throughout and modulating throughout. And I think it is a testament to Vidor that uh, it really doesn't feel that herky-jerky, all things considered, because, you know, through all of this, there's that, yeah, sort of romantic touch or melodramatic touch that the American silent filmmakers brought to, uh, you know, these movies, especially with a, you know, MGM-backed, you know, Thalberg-approved budget. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, this thing looks great, you know, obviously. Yeah. I think, too, there's another thing at play um, that, you know, in, in speaking to all of that, that all those different sort of modes and experiences and the different sort of scenes we have um, and the amount of time, as Ryan described in his intro, that it sort of yeah. takes up, up is, of course, like, number one, it allows us time to to really get to know these people as best we can in like a silent film from from the era. But but to really spend a lot of time seeing these relationships develop from, you know, of course, with with Jim, like his his family and that dynamic there. But but also with the the three men, the three buddies who will will find themselves shoulder to shoulder 
as they head off to France and eventually to the front. And then, of course, also with, with Melisande and some of her family. We, we, we spend so much time with them through moments of light comedy and, and drama and romance that we start to forget why they're all here, right? Mm-hmm. In a in a in a in a in a really like powerful way that that when suddenly the call up does arrive, and we almost are thinking like it'll never come. <laughs> like hey, mm-hmm. this is great. Everyone's just hanging out, having some stale cake, you know, enjoying each other's uh, company in the barracks, having some wine, beating up some MPs, falling in love, making an improvised shower. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously revealing a lot of the great, <laughs> the great stuff in there. But like, yeah, you know, a long period of time elapses. Before then, those orders do come in to head off to the front that it is, once it does arrive, like so devastating. It is, it is as you described, it is this kind of like in the, the case of the big parade, like this, this end of the world moment, it seems, because they are going from, from one world to another entirely. And I think what's interesting is that one obviously reflecting on the immediacy of the horrors of the first world war not even you know uh, 10 years on from it and the other of course as you mentioned in your intro marsh in 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 the great war la grande guerra um world war 2 and and those very you know raw wounds that are still healing but but in the case of la grande guerra uh it's like What's interesting there is that these characters, they know right off the bat they're in the shit and they are headed to a bad place. I mean, it is like pretty much right when he gets his uniform on, he's like, I am fucked. How did I get here? I got to get basically out of this situation. And and those images and those those particularly like ominous signs are are there like almost immediately in La Grande Guerra. Whereas, you know, the big parade, it really almost like lulls us into a false sense of security. Whereas mm-hmm. the other one is, of course, like paranoid, even in the enlistment office, right? Because isn't that the case? Like as he's signing up, he's like, I gotta make sure I get a I get like a soft job, like not a very dangerous one. And that's actually how he meets who will become basically his his buddy, you know, how close they are, how 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 much they care for one another will of course make up much of the comedy throughout the film. Exactly. And you know, I think it's worth pointing out too especially in the case of that sort of like big parade feeling of like, yeah, you just are, we're on the farm now. Like this movie's about hanging out on a farm. Um, I think, you know, one of the key, key distinctions is that uh, a couple years before this, the play, what price glory uh, had debuted and become a really big hit. And this was, you know, sort of how Vidor kind of pitched it to Thalberg being like, Hey, we can do like a, what price glory thing, but like Fox had the rights to what price glory and Raul, Walsh did it a year after the big parade, but in the meantime, they hired the playwright, uh, Lawrence Stallings, of What Price Glory, who lost a leg in the Mm. woods 
that you literally see depicted like in the big parade. So they were like, we'll get the what price glory guy to write us a script. But if you guys have seen that movie, that's mostly a, a farmhouse movie. Like the, the war, because it's a play is like off screen abstract. And so I think like, you know, Vidor and Thalberg are thinking like, we're going to go to the trenches, right? So we'll low you. We'll think you think you're watching what price glory. And then we're going to hit you with the mm. MGM budget, you know, <laughs> and the flyovers, which uh, I should also, you know, one, one thing I discovered, William Wellman, you know, gave them the idea to do the strafe, uh, you know, because oh, wow. I, I saw that shit in real life. Why don't you put this in your movie where a plane just, you know, just buzzes a bunch of infantry guys. So anyway, yeah, but really showing the MGM budget, you know, and the big fireworks after getting to know all these people. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, like it really does build in that in that epic, epic silent way. Yeah, it is one of the key distinctions here because Big Parade is populist Hollywood cinema. And so when it lulls you into a sense of security with its romanticism, it has all the resources at its disposal to give you that feeling, but you can't shake it at the top of the Great War. This is Italian post-war cinema, and mm-hmm. you'll be damned if you if you ever gonna try and forget it. You know, it's like right off the bat. I, I know it's set in World War One, but boy, oh boy, this is definitely 1950s Italy and 1950s Italian <laughs> cinema. You, mm-hmm. you cannot shake it. So th- that flavor colors how you watch the movie. And, and they're aware of that, right? I mean, I don't know if I would... It, it's playing with neorealist tendencies. You know, mm-hmm. you still have that in this film. So you have something that's such a distinctly post-war genre, post-World War II genre, being applied to something set so far back in the past. And I think that's why what your assessment was so great, Marsh, is the idea that it's challenging an older narrative with the new narrative, the new mode of filmmaking that was so present in Italy during the 1950s. Yeah, you couldn't, you certainly couldn't do anything like this, you know, in the days of Mussolini, that's for sure. I mean, (laughs) and I think it's, you know, the film tells you right away too, like the first images, the credits are like boots in mud, cigarettes, like all these like material things in these close-ups, right? And this is like the movie telling us like, this movie's about, that like this movie is about these guys having to like sign stuff out mm-hmm. you know like this yeah. movie is about having shit food yeah you know bad like, soup yeah this movie <laughs> has all those neorealist details like everything you can think of in here yeah. uh is at a certain point thrown out or at the screen because also there's like a huge ensemble in every shot i yeah. mean talk about 50s italian cinema these guys are post-dubbed the unchanged cameras moving moving around 100 people are talking you know the crowd work in both of these films outrageous but especially in the great war i mean the amount of activity that is happening in the background of every shot even things that are just happening outside of windows lends such an unbelievable abundance to life to everything that's going on it makes you forget that it's just dubbed italian cinema which has always been like a bit of a roadblock for me but when you see (laughs) all this stuff happening in the background constantly in these tracking shots and these pans it's it's the scale is is huge well and and that's you know again i think um 
like such a a a an important visual hallmark for you know in terms of like depicting different you know conflicts you know what what they looked like you know how they were shaped how they felt um like something that is is particularly unique to the first world war it's it's a it's a metaphor but it's it's also like quite literally true this among wars is you know one of the most horrifying like meat grinders you know it is the arrival of modernity i've always seen mm-hmm. it as that for for the world for the planet you know um for for nation states uh because it's it's all these bodies put into uniforms, you know, what Deleuze would call numbering numbers, all these men put into the exact same clothing and, and lined up and marched in a parade to these, again, literal like meat grinders. Right. And, and both of the films like do that in their visual like construction, the, the spectacle of both like captured that striking image at, at various points of a huge line of, of flesh and uniform marching to its demise, essentially to its destruction, death. to its certain death, just, just bodies being fed into the machine of like cruel industrialized killing, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's very early on in La Grande Guerra where there's like a shot again, and you're describing these like large crowd sequences where all the guys are are getting onto a train and they're getting ready to head off from this like troop depot to another area of the front. And they're all like jovial and, and loud and Italian, you know, it's a lot of, (laughs) it's a lot of commotion going on, putting hundreds of Italian soldiers into a, into a train. (laughs) But as their train is just getting ready to like, disembark to leave another train arrives from the front and it is a hospital train and it is painted starkly white and just even that like visual contrast in this black and white cinematography is is like a a a moment of like doom visually that all these soldiers also pick up on it's like we're the before here's the fucking after arriving like i guess this is what we are destined for yeah the the first thing that happens when the italians get to the front in the great war you know they they take the train and they they do you know they do some training or whatever and then they're in the mountains and there's this uh very characteristic of the movie like very long lateral tracking shot that's introducing us to the front you know and as it settles in like after dollying like a hundred feet there's just an execution in the background played out in full with like no commentary there's like stuff going on in the foreground and they just line these people up and they just shoot them and that's in like the first two minutes of like being at the front so i was like jesus you know like obviously i was expecting uh it to take some kind of dark turn you know but like it's always being reminded like constantly even before they get there as you point out andy yeah that's something that's an interesting difference between the two films where even when things are very funny in the great war we are always reminded of the hell that they're a part of it's around every single corner 
even in moments of seeming beauty, something interrupts it. And then the difference being with the big parade, as we've kind of talked about um, repeatedly, is this idea that the the front half is so bucolic. Nature is so present in King Vidor's vision of of this film. There is such a lush attention to detail with the countryside in the front half of the film. And there's this transition period where we enter the war, where we are like in the woods and in these trees. And we're sort of being introduced to this idea of like mechanized death of all these men that are just walking through these bare, tall trees. And we have snipers that are almost a part of the trees. They're up in the trees. And then when we arrive at the trench warfare, I, I saw a write-up online. Someone had mentioned that it, it it's literally not Earth. That scene doesn't take place on Earth because of how stylish it is. And with the blue tint and the way Vitor shoots it and the way it's lit, it does. It, it could be taking place on Mars or the moon for for the way it feels. He's so obsessed with how the earth and nature relate to all of this that that moment is so horrifying and apocalyptic that it might as well not even be planet earth. That's how it feels in that sequence. And then, yeah, that's the difference with the Great War, where even when we feel grounded, we're still reminded that all of this, this stuff is happening on earth right in front of us around every corner. You know, speaking of that otherworldly feeling, Ryan, I can't help but think about uh, Vidor famously played a metronome during the woods sequence because he had a very specific idea of how it was going to be cut rhythmically. I mean, he worked it out like Eisenstein mathematically and like a musician. And he saw that whole sequence as like music, basically. Mm. And so he was playing a metronome. So when soldiers are dropping in the background, it's on beat yeah. to the march. And yeah, the- they're all marching like <laughs> in sync for in, the most part. Right. And so again, that mechanized idea uh, of this war uh, really coming in like through the form like it's crazy like. and it's 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 again it's like it's it's important to recognize like like that that is coming from uh experiences of of soldiers and 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 a, an important acknowledgement of what makes the first world war and the space of it so unique among other conflicts and you know the biggest difference between world war 1 and world war 2 in that experience of space is that you know the fronts for the most part you know this 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 literal hell on earth that that was built there you know in no man's land between these trenches um you know that was removed from the cities you know it's such a surreal experience when you read in so many accounts of soldiers, you know, beginning their day in fucking Paris or whatever, and then getting on a train and then, you know, 50, 60 miles gradually entering this, this, like just seeing the signs where suddenly there's a lot of bare trees and then, and then the, 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 the craters and the shells. And then yes, going to this, this place that looks like the surface of the fucking moon, except it's, it's, it's made of like shit and entrails and rotting corpses and blood and death. And having that experience of being there, being in these nightmarish spaces. But then of course, suddenly when you're removed from the front, going to an area where there's not a single sign 
of its actual existence. You know, earlier when you were talking about the, the the people who wrote these films and the people who made these films, like, yes, it's it's very obvious to me that these were movies made by people who had experienced war because they do such a good job of delineating those spaces. The spaces of war and the spaces removed from war. I should be more specific, like combat. You know, it's like the Truffaut problem, right? Well, the problem with so many like quote anti-war films is that they give in to the spectacle and they make it exciting and they make it something that, you know, even when they're trying to show us, you know, the violence and the horror of war, they still try to capture it in a way that's very like dashing, daring, that, that gets us as an audience sort of like worked up. Whereas like real soldiers, like they don't want to linger on the violence. They don't want to linger on that horror. Like that's their trauma, you know? And and they're so much more concerned with, with life and, and with living and marking the difference between those two things. The worst thing that can possibly fucking happen to you is you get killed or your friend gets killed or you get your fucking leg blown off, right? But what about the friends, your buddies? What about, yeah, that romance you had? What about... All of that life that we should be celebrating, that we should be focusing on, and then how it gets snatched away from us, how it gets taken away from those experiences. And yeah, obviously, like one film is, I think both films are 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 presenting that to us. But of course, as we've discussed, like it, at, at very different sort of paces, you know? I mean, that idea is explored explicitly in the big parade in two of the best shots I've ever seen in a movie. I, I knew we would like get to these eventually, but I feel like you kind of summed up exactly what I was thinking about what these two shots represent in the big parade in terms of what is beautiful in the world and also what we lose in these types of conflicts and that difference between life and death. And I, I, I just still cannot get over it. I, I get goosebumps when I think about being, seeing this movie in 1925 <laughs> and, and like being in a, a giant movie palace and encountering these two shots. I mean, the whole film in general, but in particular, these two shots. And they're essentially two shots that are both about four minutes long. There's like a couple, there's like a cut in the second one, like, but it's intended to be like a single moment and they both perfectly mirror each other. And one of them is the romantic encounter between Jim and Melisande when he teaches her how to chew gum. And he introduces gum to her. And it's this lovely, eloquent sequence that apparently involved a lot of improvisation, which is just funny to think about in, in silent cinema, and the shot being this long and durational. Both of these shots feel extremely modern to me. Uh, see, and then like seeing and knowing is from 1925 blows my mind. But the, the, the sequence goes on for a while and he's showing her, you know, you chew the gum and you pull it out of your mouth and you, you know, you extend the gum and she swallows her gum, but they, you know, they, they can't speak the same language. So they're kind of having a laugh about that. And again, it's, I'm like, when do you see shots from a silent film like this? And especially a film of this scale with a shot that's almost five minutes long. And we see mm -hmm. this. And then this moment is mirrored in the trenches when Jim tackles a German soldier and shoves him into the trench and he has a knife and he's going to kill him. And there's all this time in all of these moments. He's holding the knife above him and it's durational and he decides not to kill him. 
and he leans back. The soldier asks for a cigarette. The wounded German soldier, after Jim sees that he has pretty much a fatal wound on his chest, Jim takes a cigarette out of his helmet, offers it to him. Duration. The shot keeps going. He's smoking, and eventually the German soldier dies, and Jim doesn't realize that's happened. He sees the cigarette fall out of his mouth. He puts it back in. He tries to put it back in, I think, three times. Mm -hmm. And it's just... Vidor gives this space to show you what death looks like. Mm-hmm. And then Jim smokes the cigarette, which is a key, which is a key point that Durniat points out. He's like, and like a smart soldier, he like smokes the rest yeah. of it. Like, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, do you let that thing go to waste? Like, that's the kind of detail, you know? That shot, I mean, uh, that you're describing in the in the shell hole, like for uh, uh, again, I mean, I don't want to say like for 1925. I mean, there, I've seen plenty of great performances, you know, going as far back as like man gets sprayed in face with hose, you know, in the 1890s, right? <laughs> sprinkle, like, sprinkle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I've seen some great performances, but man, the depth of the acting in that moment is incredible. Like seeing all of these sort of realizations that Jim is kind of going through in that moment of being like, oh, I fucking wounded this guy. Oh, no, I killed this fucking guy. Oh, he's still alive. Oh, why bother, like, murdering him a second time? And, like, there's even these moments where, like, he's going to be tender to the soldier. And and there's a moment where he's sort of, like, being a little gentle with him. And then the German soldier, like, like rests his head on Jim. And Jim shoves his head forcefully mm-hmm. like off of him like get the fuck off of me and then he's like i'll get you a cigarette but like get off me and then his head kind of falls back down he lets it rest there for a second and you could see him kind of soften and then like work himself up again and be like but no this is an enemy i kill him get the fuck off of me like i don't want to deal with this man the back and forth the seesaw of emotions that he's going through in that whole sequence while yes giving this man a fucking cigarette it's it's incredible and you know what it also reminded me it's like man in in Obviously, in like cinema history and war history, and when people talk about the great anti-war films, or you know, particularly focusing on World War One, like so much emphasis has been made, I feel over the years in terms of like Lewis Milestone's All Quiet on the Western Front, which hits so many of the same beats that this movie has. Even this moment in the shell hole, where we will see that in Milestone's All Quiet on the Western Front between the German. Paul Baumer and the Frenchman that he kills. But man, you know, and maybe it's just because they're they're right in my mind thinking about these films and the various mm-hmm. versions. This version and the way that sequence is handled, that, that it's idea- It's way subtler. Yeah, of like intimate death. And again, perhaps also because it's silent. You know, because in All Quiet on the Western Front, he ends up having that yeah. like corny dialogue. Well, I mean, I hate calling it that, but where he's just like, oh, let me see your wallet. Oh, it looks like you were a paper hanger in your life. Oh, it must be your wife. Like the talking, like yeah, yeah. You wouldn't say shit to this fucking guy you just murdered. You know, like yeah. you would he just doesn't sit understand there. you anyway. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's amazing. And I'm not going to describe it yet because we just get too far ahead of ourselves. But that's exactly how I felt about the ending of the big parade. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And if there was audio in it, I would have thought it was like awful. <laughs> There's just something that's just pure silent cinema expression. And to me, those two shots in the big parade, like that's what cinema's capable of, you know? 
I want to circle back to what you said, Andy, about the sort of disconnect between civilian life and, you know, the life of a soldier, which I think is is emphasized, like you said, you know, throughout both of the films uh, in, in multiple occasions. And I couldn't help but think one of the funny connections these uh, these films have is that they both have scenes of like patriotic readings, like in sort of like social clubs settings where yeah. you know the you know like people obviously who aren't fighting the conflict are are sort of waxing rhapsodic about it quando grida bronzetti fantasma erto fra i nuvoli quando i vecchi fra mesti ripetono che un di con nere chiome l'addio trento ti dissero quando fremono i giovani che videro pur ieri da san giusto ridere glauco ladria Oh, al bel mar di Trieste, ai poggi, agli animi, volate col nuovo anno, antichi Wait. versi tali. Ma dove là che ci hanno portati questi qui? A Udine ci dovevano mandare donne e vino locali. Ma che sarà sta Udine? Oh? Ma che è Parigi? Ehi, hey, dai un'occhiata qui, bambino. Or uh, even in... Uh... It's in the it's in the big parade with the the father-in-law or like you know the French the French guy remembering Lord knows what conflict yeah. he was in you yeah. know <laughs> the fucking Crimean War for God's sake yeah honestly um, but that you know uh, both you know in both films that dynamic where the soldiers are just like Jesus Christ like what. Shut the fuck up, you know, <laughs> yeah. especially the Italians, because they've been through through hell by the time they get to like the right. patriotic supper club. Uh, whereas, you know, Jim hasn't even, but he's still looking around going like, OK, this is a bit much, you know, like we're just shoveling shit over here, you know, like <laughs> literally. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a couple shots, too, of, of like dejected soldiers walking through towns that are like expecting a celebration. But like what celebrate? what you know um those m- moments are are emphasized yeah there's that amazing shot in la grande guerra i think where they're coming back from the front at a certain point and the streets again the crowd work right the streets are lined with people singing patriotic italian songs waving flags and banners and celebrating and and it's an amazing sequence where like as this this like dejected, disheveled, broken, like battalion is is dragging itself back from the front. The crowd slowly hushes, the songs kind of die down. The people are even like overtaken by that sight and and perhaps even questioning their their patriotism, right? Or the the profanity of singing such patriotic songs when faced with like this just absolute like human uh, uh, destruction in front of them, like dragging itself across. It's an amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah. And there's one other part of uh, the great war that I want to highlight where, you know, it's, it's just a, a single shot. Another, here's another great little tiny little long take of the soldiers huddling up during a rainstorm. Uh, and I think it's a mat shot. You can see like the camp or whatever, the trenches like deep in the background and they're all huddled, huddled together and it's raining. And one of them's reading the newspaper and he just starts bitching. Like all they print is lies, you know? Uh, and he just starts going off and they all start chiming in again about the misconceptions 
connections and disconnects between their lives. And they say shit like, people think war is, is hard only when you're being shot at. It's the ration that never comes, mm-hmm. you know? So again, mm-hmm. I think both films are attuned to those kind kinds of details instead of these big grand narratives, right? What does one guy say? Uh, War is just a long wait without a minute of rest. Yeah. You know, yeah. like Beautiful. these guys are just like philosophizing uh, and they're all like working class, like illiterate peasants, basically. But they get what that sort of day to day life is and especially the disconnect. I mean, you know, when you were saying like waking up in Paris, I couldn't help but think about the soldiers who were uh, barracked in uh, Galmont Studios, which shut down, you know, during the war. Like these guys would wake up in, in Galmont and then like go to the front or whatever like that that is insane mm-hmm. too just like yeah in the early days of the first world war when the germans were enacting their their schlieffen plan their attempt to quickly like rush to paris like there was in the early days there was such panic because of like how rapidly the germans were advancing that there's so many stories of of the French just desperately trying to get soldiers to the front. And Paris, like, they basically requisitioned all of the taxis in Paris. And suddenly, like, soldiers were piling into street taxis who were then rushing them off to the front. Like, taking taking fucking, like, UberX to the front, Hell essentially. Yeah. Like, that's, again, like, such a strange and surreal, like confusion between the two and for the taxi drivers to basically be like all right uh you're here bye i'm going back to like to yeah pick up somebody from like pigal you know or whatever or take I mean, them to the cinema to see the new fliad serial <laughs> you know yeah, yeah chaplin movie you know <laughs> i mean yeah but but again like to to your point about like even like the the, the food i mean like oh, yeah, i remember that's like that's a huge part yeah, I remember a, a a friend of mine whose uh, grandfather had served in in World War II, and you know he had been in in major battles. You know, I think he was in D Day. I think he he was like part of the eventual like march to to Berlin for the for the Americans. He saw huge like battles. He's like, you know, for years we we were always trying to like ask him about his experiences. You know, we wanted to know like Grandpa like. What did you do during the war? What did you see? And, and you know, they knew, they had the, 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 the context, the background of, like, things he probably saw. He said, but every time we got him going, he would just start bitching about the food. <laughs> He's like, that's all he wanted to talk about was, like, you know, man, we never had a hot meal. And then, the, you know, there was this one time, there was this one time we actually had a really good meal. Somebody came through, they found a couple, like, chickens or whatever, you know? And I think, again, both films, like, also, like, capture that and again that's why it's so obvious that these are films made from an actual soldier's experience because like the blood the death the thing that everybody wants the money shots especially in terms of cinema of war for soldiers they're like yeah man well of course that's fucking part of the job but but what we all know you know you're going to war you're signing up you're signing up for fucking the worst part of it war obviously but but it's the indignities that you have to suffer along the way that's like so much more upsetting. And obviously, like, look, the people behind uh, La Grande Guerra, especially, are 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 very leftist in terms of their their politics. And if you look at some of the other films that they made, and you know, particularly for the director, but also like Luciano Vincenzoni, one of the screenwriters. And so the movie also captures. Like, you know, that, the, the, the general sort of, uh, 
suffering of workers, right? Of the conditions that they're forced to do these dumb jobs in. This, of course, is the the perhaps like largest and most epic way of exploring like the exploitation of workers, because that's it. We see, of course, the death, the, the violence, the battles. But yeah, when suddenly they're sitting there being like, can we talk to somebody about the goddamn soup? There's like no pasta in it, you know? And it's like, they're, they're panicking, but they're almost like ready to go on strike. They're on the verge of that, you know? And, and they're, they're panicking. They're trying to figure out how to do it, but they're also afraid of just getting lined up and like guys they've seen and just getting shot for mutiny or something like that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's all of the horrible things that they have to suffer along the way. And again, like you said, in that intro, the, the poetry of that intro of showing us, you know, not scenes of battle, but of suffering, of, of, of a million little forms of suffering, stale bread, boots that are always wet, you know? I mean, like, that is the day-to-day experience. There's you know? a great attention to tobacco in both films that, like, you have to have in there, you know? Like, it's, it's the most important thing, you know, especially for Slim. And I want to say, Ryan, uh, you highlighted Slim as, as being a Scandinavian worker. While the actor is Scandinavian, I feel like in the film he's like a... He's like a cracker, you know, kind of like slim, yeah. you know, he's got the tobacco or whatever, but like the guy looks like an insane, like Danish person, basically. So (laughs) you're a hundred percent correct. I was thinking after I had said it, I was like, oh wait, he is kind of like played off as a Southern boy in the movie, like a good old boy. But I think the reason I was thinking it was because Dave Kerr, that was like fresh in my mind. Uh, He like highlights that Scandinavian quality of him i did want to note too just as we've talked about that the perspective in the great war is really unique and how it deals with the disconnect between ceremony and myth and then kind of adding this bitter irony to it that's what i was so taken by so often throughout the film it has a really dark sense of humor Mm-hmm. Um, and an extremely, you know, bitter way of uh, confronting it. And I think that that's perfectly encapsulated during the uh, ceremonies of Christmas that occur in the Great War. One of the standout scenes of the film when a messenger is crossing no man's land and trying to arrive uh, and he's hiding behind, I think, just like a mound of dirt or something. And He's been told, like, I've been ordered. I have to deliver this to you right now. And the soldiers who are in safety are kind of calling out to him and saying, hold on, wait until they expend their ammunition. Like, don't don't dive in here yet because you're just going to get shot. It would be suicidal of you to do this. And he's like, why? And then there's another soldier in that zone of safety who is suggesting like no this could be serious he's been given orders if he was told that he needs to deliver this message there's probably key information here. yeah it's the young lieutenant of uh-huh. the group, right know, the young officer so they encourage this guy to move forward deliver the message he shot he's killed this message is taken to the commander and when it's read <laughs> The message is just Merry Christmas. <laughs> like 
and the distribution of chocolate and grappa. Chocolate yeah. and grappa, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's like, yeah, this cruelly bitter, ironic scene where then the, the guy has to go around and be like, uh, here's the free chocolate or whatever. And it's like this guy's just dying on the bed right next to him, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that scene, yeah, that scene in particular, I think, is really what this what this film is all about, right? And it's like in that you have pitted against each other like the most seasoned badass soldier of the entire battalion, Borden, who takes payment from other soldiers to to, to do like various maneuvers and actions mm-hmm. because uh, he's just like a professional soldier type with a big family and he's like sending all this money home. So he'll volunteer for all this dangerous work. He's like the coolest guy ever. And he's like, Yo, just hide behind that thing until the clip runs out. Like, no big deal. Yeah. Just wait. <laughs> and, like, yeah, then you, of course, you know, the dumb young lieutenant, the officer, way, uh, you know, way out of his league. And, again, there's a class dynamic, too, by the way, of course, between the officers who are, like, middle class or upper, upper class and the rest of the soldiers who, again, are, yeah, basically peasants uh, or, you know, Milanese criminals or whatever, you know? But see, even, even too, about that character, Bordin, I think is his name, probably Bordin or whatever, but, like, even the way you've kind of described him, like, yes, he is, like, the veteran, like, he is that guy, like, the the veteran who knows his way around the front. This is not his first rodeo. He's already seen action when we meet him. Yeah, yeah, He, he knows how to survive to the best of his abilities. I found even in that, like that, that what you described, his sort of way of like taking on these, these jobs, these extra volunteer work, like uh, again, a, a very like, you know, um, very class conscious cynicism because he is like, all right, yeah, we're all getting paid to do this. I'm going to be the most fucking mercenary. I am going to charge extra. I'm going to take on all this extra work. Like, yeah, we're being paid here. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do it, but fucking pay me. Like he's never doing those things out of heroism oh, no. or, or bravery. He's like, I got a fucking, I got, if I'm going to die out here, I better make sure I get every last cent I possibly can for the risks that we're taking for, for some dumb order that some, some 22 year old Lieutenant is going to give me. And I'm going to have to follow, like, to my death, you know, pointlessly for, yes, a, a Merry Christmas message. I mean, like, uh, again, it is such a, a, a cynical, it is such a cynical film that, yes, it is very, very, very Italian in that perspective. Because as you described it, Marsh, like, yeah, you know, Mussolini's brief period of, of whipping the Italians into a frenzy is not, generally speaking, like, I think, how you often see... Italians depict their experiences of war, right? Uh, and and particularly the wars of the 20th century, the two big ones, you know, that that nightmare, that feeling of we all got duped. Like we as a nation, we got duped by this. Because aside from Mussolini's way of remembering the First World War, the Italians had one of the most nightmarish experiences and one of the most absurd experiences during World War One. I. I mean, famously, the Battle of Isonzo uh, was fought 17 times 
this one stretch of ground was exchanged 17 fucking times between the Austrians and the Italians with, with nothing significantly ever being gained. I mean, I think that is an experience that, that is, is, is remembered like as it should be, which is like, so what was this all for? What were the 16 other, what, what, like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Like, it's like the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, that's like us playing Battlefield 1. That's when I think about the Italians during World War 1 is us fighting the same battle at Montecrappa, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Montecrappa. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hundreds and hundreds of times and it's you know, that's why that game does actually evoke something I think very profound. <laughs> oh, I agree. As we keep doing it over and over again, but at what cost? What does it give us? Yeah. There was never <laughs> any real sense of accomplishment, you know, <laughs> I mean, other than just trying to get up and do it again the next day. Yeah. And from, you know, I'm, I'm not a World War I expert like Andy, but from what I gleaned, uh, the the battle that's uh, well depicted somewhat after the fact <laughs> in in the Great War is the Battle of Caporetto, which was uh, a devastating uh, battle for the Italians. I mean, we're talking about you know thousands and thousands killed, hundreds of thousands captured, like really bad stuff, and uh, we get this horrifying you know uh, again this apocalyptic scene of them arriving after the Battle of Caporetto. And that's, again, like this film, you know, I feel like some viewers may not know how to handle like this this tone because these guys show up in like clean uniforms and there's just like barbecued bodies everywhere, people moaning on the soundtrack, like the worst shit ever. And they were like, I forget exactly sleeping in a barn somewhere, just yeah. like Well they were they were again like shirking their duties. Right. They were they are throughout this film looking for every opportunity they can to get away from the front, to get away from danger. And like that battle and and particularly right, its aftermath comes to us after a period where we had gotten to know a lot of the other men that they were serving with, including an officer that was some, that was actually quite competent. And, and you know, this isn't the young idiot lieutenant, but a, a more seasoned, yeah, a more seasoned uh, lieutenant. I think it's Ram Romolo Valli plays him. Um, and, and he's a more seasoned guy and he doesn't, like nitpick the soldiers' appearances, or you know, there's like that awkward moment in the beginning where the the young officer wants to like punish all the guys or something like that and take away their leave, and this is the officer that comes in and is like, "Are you fucking crazy? Like they're gonna they're gonna murder us? Like they've earned this. They don't need you riding them on all this." And he does care for the men, and he does try to alleviate whatever suffering he can. Their leave gets taken away anyway, though, which is one of the great jokes of the film. Every single leave is revoked and also every single attack has no artillery those are the two great recurring jo jokes yeah. quote-unquote jokes of the movie yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like you know that guy we we start to like see him as like boy that it's a good thing they've got this guy around yeah, the only competent man yeah and they while they go off to just try to like escape the front they then see at night like the artillery like and and are just looking at it in in the distance like wow somebody's getting pounded over there like our guys 
and they go back and yes, like basically their entire unit is wiped out except for them, including this officer. And it's like a really touching moment where they like find his body. And you do again, like you're saying these tonal shifts, like we're kind of like laughing with them and we're like, Oh boy, like good for them. They got out of this yeah, one. Hell yeah. They dodged a bullet like literally and figuratively. And then they go back and they see it. And, and even with those actors, both of them, you know, there's then this sense of like survivor's guilt, you yep. know, in Big walking time. around all of that carnage and chaos and going like, and yeah, here we are in our, in our clean ass uniforms, fresh sleep and food in our bellies. And look at these fucking guys, you know? I mean, yeah, there, there is that moment when they're even challenged on it and, and Oreste is like, well, we, we wouldn't have made a difference. And you know what? <laughs> yeah, he's right. Abs- like, he's absolutely fucking right. And it's so horrible, but it's also the truth, you know? So, like, moments like that uh, hit really hard. Um, while we've been sort of talking about all these different, like, you know, characters in The Great War got me thinking that the big parade is, like, so honed in Hollywood style on its main characters yeah. that there really aren't other characters per se and it's also you know silent film much more uh, everyone's working in more of a caricature mode you know uh being a visual thing but like we don't know any of the other so any of the other soldiers uh except our three guys right and particularly jim's perspective is privileged uh but at least we're treated to uh, a lot of good army songs throughout <laughs> in fact both films have song motifs uh uh, the big parade has a song motif, of course, the In the Army Now song that they sing. Uh, and in The Great War, the film is actually divided into seven chapters broken up by uh, song lyrics from World War One Italian songs. And those chapters typically start with, like, I, th- I assume period music, uh, it would seem, but I, I didn't confirm that, you know. Uh, so interesting, they both are... Yeah, sort of riffing on uh, the music of the war. And who can't? World War I era music is the best. <laughs> and especially uh, those of you out there who are fans of uh, John Cassavetti's husbands know. Uh, have a few drinks with your pals. Sing some World War I This songs. one goes back First World War. <laughs> Man, it does feel like the we that we do kind of forget that there are other characters in the big parade even the characters we have i mean we for we do kind of forget about the sweetheart back home justine because this movie is so present tense when we fall in it's love it's also because Mel- jim is a bad boyfriend yeah. he doesn't write her back like <laughs> right. we get That's multiple a- letters from her which is a great sort of you know monticellian style like cruel irony where she's like oh i bet you're just like chilling in the most beautiful place on earth france or whatever and it's like uh not so much you know or whatever but uh yeah he's also like he's into the french women you know but that's what i mean it's when 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 there is that moment where we're like oh shit he hasn't been writing justine any letters he hasn't been getting back to her we've we've forgotten about her as well because we're so enraptured with the the very present tense romance that we're treated to even when we have as you mentioned andy the stale cake justine (laughs) she baked him a cake and then shipped the cake to france 
course, was a bit stale, and he had to use his knee <laughs> to kind of like break it in, into yeah. chunks to share with his friends. Yeah. Of which, very a lovely moment when he gives both of them the bigger pieces, so he yeah. can like sit there with the smaller. Again, one. though, talk about duration. Like he is working that fucking yes. cake. He's like sawing at it with his bayonet. I yeah. mean, it goes on he, for quite a while. Yeah, he's like putting his fucking back into that thing to try to like bust that cake into pieces, mm. you know. And it's a while before he actually starts cutting into it and Molly was cooking at the time as I had mentioned to her I'm like Justine sent Jim a, a cake from America how how on earth could that have gotten to him in time where it was be edible and she's like well she could have used oil if she used oil instead of butter it might be preserved a little bit longer and she goes it's probably a bit stale though and when she said it that was the moment he was cutting in and I'm like oh yeah that thing's <laughs> seemingly solid as a rock and just as the stale cake was split in two, you know, when the big parade was released, it was also split uh, in two with an mm. intermission in the middle. Uh, and I do want to, you know, shout out that great end of part one scene when uh, they have, well, first of all, you know, uh, Melisande finds out about Justine, you know, she sees the picture and the letter and puts puts two and two together and it's this very heartbreaking moment and at that moment he's called to the front the, the trucks are revving up the jeeps are revving up there's commotion everywhere and they get separated and so in this like hollywood sequence there's this you know insane like chase down where they're like looking for each other and jim's getting like hauled onto a truck by other like army guys you know i want to go kiss my girlfriend getting dragged by dudes but it really is you know this very like emotionally powerful sequence uh at least I thought so until I read in a bit of resourcefulness, you know, they shot that at Griffith Park uh, in Los Angeles and they couldn't get a, enough Jeeps or as many Jeeps as they wanted. So they created a loop. And so for like certain shots, the, the Jeeps are just looping through, through the shot, you know, oh, like, that's and, awesome. isn't that, isn't that really cool? Uh, so cool. while, yeah, while this amazing, like emotional scene is happening, really, it's just like, five trucks circling around the camera or whatever you know i was totally convinced i mean well because your your attention is so focused on her when she gets like his boot or his shoe and she's just left behind holding on to this last artifact of jim's as they're being carted off that the big parade has begun and they're on their way to the front and everything is moving and she's standing still and she's in the center of the frame so yeah i mean he's he knew exactly how to to create the effect we our eyes would be totally locked in on her and i don't know I, this is like maybe a dumb guy thing uh but i was just so tickled finding it very funny that they used a french actress to to play her in a in like a silent movie like i think it's great that you know she was and i'm presumably she could speak uh, english french uh, representation dude it's important. i know i just think it's like it's just funny you know i mean i guess like she's she's speaking french and people at the time might have been a lot better at reading lips you know just watching silent movies i guess i don't know it's a crazy assumption i just like thought it was kind of funny that like i'm like oh great attention to detail even though i can't hear her <laughs> and her convincing french accent 
Well, likewise, <laughs> I feel like The Great War has a lot of great attention to detail that is completely lost on non-Italian viewers because, like, oh, yeah. Monticelli is so obviously creating this cross-section of Italian society. And especially when you consider that World War One was really not that far after Italian unification. I mean, people who lived through Italian unification were alive during World War One, And so this is like a new country. I mean, like, there's all these regions, there's all these types, there's all these personalities. We know them from the cinema, the Sicilian, the Roman, the Tuscan, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm just making things up now. But, like, you know that there are these certain types and accents and things that represent different regions that obviously like I'm not picking up on a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> even, even in like the version, even in the version we watched with like the subtitles, like there at certain points were like brackets to kind of give us some sort of like annotation <laughs> about slang or about like a, a figure that they've referenced, which were of course very helpful, you know, where it'll be like famous war hero, you know, like, oh, okay, so that's, that's the joke there. Right. But yes, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's so much packed into it that, that is specific for, or would resonate with Italian audiences. But again, also the brilliance is that this is also a, a very universal experience of war that that again looking at two different films from two different countries two different time periods two different perspectives uh they share so much experientially they share so many of the same qualities and that of course like that humanism that that overrides them both and they both depict the combat i think in equally like disgusting and scary and 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 hollow ways, right? We see mm -hmm. acts of of you know quote bravery and courage, but but both films kind of also show the the emptiness of so many of these these gestures in such widespread uh, carnage, such widespread chaos that again is emblematic of the First World War. You know, Ryan, you said it in your intro. It's like, yeah, obviously, like, World War II is so much more ripe for, for like, grand, spectacular war films and cinema. There's so many more World War II films than World War I. And, and of course, I think that is is because, like, the, the, the combat of World War I is so so empty, so static, you know, there are very few opportunities in World War One where where anyone can kind of do something in a small group and it, it makes any kind of fucking difference in the grand scheme of things, you know? Even in the, the big parade, there is this kind of moment where, you know, they, they have like a sort of trench raid that they, they take part in um, at the front, you know, when they're actually there fighting the, the Germans and, and Jim kind of gets this bloodlust at a certain point and he sort of like rushes the enemy lines by himself, like a one-man yeah, army. He freaks, dude. Yeah, he freaks, he loses his mind. 
mind, you know? And it's just like the movie carefully kind of shows us like, yeah, but this is, this is, this is nothing, you know, this is bad. Like, and this isn't going to mean anything. Oh, he killed a German. Great. And as we've described that scene, look what it amounted to. He just fucking like murdered a guy. Like, that's it. You know, this isn't shifting the lines. This wasn't, you know, winning the day. It was awful. It was worthless. And I think that one of the qualities I like so much about the Great War is that, you know, that post-World War II perspective and how that gets sprinkled in throughout so much. One of the big moments of irony, of course, being when the two soldiers are looking at a baby and they're talking about this, like, young little baby and they mention, you know, oh, this this child is blessed to be born in 1916. He'll never have to fight wars, you know, and giving that perspective mm-hmm. of they think this is the war to end all wars and that's what it felt like. And then this is a post-World War II Italian film. Like, that's just like a nasty little joke that's included in there. To that point, like, and I think that's one of the really, like, kind of important perspectives of World War I films and sort of, like, mm-hmm. linking them in in terms of, like, when they were produced. That That context is so, so, so vital, right? Because this film, What Price Glory... And this film, I mean, uh, The Big Parade, What Price Glory, All Quiet on the Western Front. These are films made right around the, the you know, it, it's, it's fresh, you know, the, 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 the hope, the optimism, the, the, the Wilsonian, you know, idea, the League of Nations. Let's make sure that this never happens again, you know? Even with All Quiet on the Western Front, people saying like, you know, I think it was screened at the League of Nations at one point famously, wasn't it? And it's like, this is a movie everyone must see so that this is the war to end all wars. And I think the, the Big Parade does have that kind of like hope and optimism, uh, I think, in it. You know, that it's like, yeah, this thing was was a quagmire and it 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 just destroyed people. It destroyed life. Uh, let's let's put all this to bed like this is a this is a thing that 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 is unique. You know, this was a mistake by humanity. But yes, now in 1959 and further from there on depictions of World War One become so much more charged because that promise was broken that you're describing, that it's like, yeah, the war to end all wars, lol. That's why I say that, because it's like, no, 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 no. It didn't do anything other than essentially set the stage for a much larger and more globally encompassing inferno that would even bring us into the atomic age by the end, right? I know you're you're all over that now, right now, you yeah. know, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I think the like Ron Neguera like captures that even like extra layer of 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 like pessimism in it. One thing that I want to talk about a little bit is you know we've talked about the similarities but i i love the difference in the conception of these characters in the sense that both of these films are designed 
you know, for mass audiences, like very specifically. And Vidor's vision, right, is to uh, make a film about the American everyman, which is apparently this the son of a mill owner who doesn't want to work, you know, I guess, uh, or whatever. But it's supposed to be like in Vidor's conception, it's a character who uh, has no opinion about the war, right? He's not a pacifist, but he's also not, you know, rah, rah, whatever. Uh, he just sort of like, it just sort of happens to him, you know, after his initial fury at the parade where he gets worked up and taps his toe a little bit, you know, and that's enough to send him to the recruitment office. But it's interesting to think about Vidor's conception. He's like, the average American doesn't feel strongly either way about the war. Uh, and then, the you know, on the flip side, it's like Botticelli and, and his crew's uh, idea of the Italian everyman is like, well, inside every Italian man is a communist and a fascist. Well, and, the- <laughs> and even, even like even more specific, I think an anarchist, yeah, you know, absolutely. he's quoting Bakun in Exactly, everyone, you know? right. And I just love that that's their conception of popular cinema. It's like, we're going to start with these guys as parodies, like he's a parody of an anarchist and he's a parody of a nationalist. And it turns out they're just cowards like everyone else, you know? And so I think, yeah, both of those like differing visions, like the American vision of the everyman and the Italian vision of the everyman was kind of cracking me up, sort of putting them against each other. And again, I think since you brought up like the differences, you know, for me reflecting on, on both of the films, I think that is, there is, there is a, 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 a sort of core difference in perhaps the ultimate idea of like, you know, the first world war. And I, I think the big parade does a, a great job of like showing us like the, the sadness of being involved in this conflict. But, uh, I think obviously La Grande Guerra goes so much further in its in its condemnation of like nationalism of war of that war particularly and and of course World War II and and all wars. I still think that the the big parade ends on a note that that I don't want to say like sours things but but like you know I think for me, when I look at war films, my ultimate judgment over like whether I consider it like a pure anti-war film or a a war film that certainly shows us like bad things and tragedies, but doesn't like quite like get to the systemic condemnation level. Um, because, you know, in the big parade, unlike La Grande Guerra, we don't get a glimpse very much of like officers and and the people who are sending these men into this situation. The big parade is sort of like, yes, we all know World War I was bad. Whereas I think like La Grande Guerra is like, no, you know what's bad? Like power and authority figures, uh, idiots who make terrible decisions that send so many people to their death, right? I'm not saying the big parade isn't critical of the First World War, but I don't think it's at that level of of a nearly like, yes, almost like anarchist uh, a vision of like why government's bad, you know? Like, because at the end of the day, in the big parade, he's he's going back to his nice house, and there is, of course, I think a criticism further of like the upper class in the sense that like. His gal wasn't faithful to him. So like there is also that extra moment of him going back and being like, 
great. I'm home. I lost my fucking leg. And like, oh yeah, here's my girl. She's making out with my brother in the, in the other room, you know? I mean, like there's some of that, but, but again, I just don't think it quite goes, uh, as hard as, as like Monticelli is going in terms of its, 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 it's sort of like rejection of the the structures that put us into these places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the big parade, as I said, populist cinema. The overall argument of this film is God bless this American fortitude for having to deal with this shitty European situation. Look at this hell that yeah. all of our beautiful boys had to suffer through. That's as far as it goes. I do think both films do equally address, again, how they say, like, oh, the real victims of war, you know, the people at home, the women. And I think both films have absolute knockout, just like gut-wrenching sequences that show what that pain feels like. We have the sequence at the train in the Great War, and then we have the return to the mother in the big parade. I mean, in particular, the big parade, that ending. Talk about, we, you know, we did the call your mom episode. Talk about a call your mom moment when he comes in and he's missing his leg. He's on crutches and Vidor immediately, the camera just dollies forward directly to the mother. She goes up to him. She embraces him. And then overlaid over the images are images of his childhood him growing up she's holding her incomplete son and she's having a complete memory of his life leading up to this moment that is i mean if you're talking populist tearjerker moment like that that is just like right there it's just like Mm -hmm. here come the waterworks like all the tools of silent cinema to just make everyone in the theater cry oh yeah and then yeah that scene in the great war by the train when this earnest woman is just so optimistic talking to our two soldiers saying can you deliver this to my husband that they know is dead they know this man is dead and they have to play it off for her and it's just her performance is just like unbelievable because again this film is full of this irony and this cynicism and it's this anarchist spirit as it's going after people in power and then here's still just this individual this woman that has all this hope that is still thinking her husband's going to come home delivering him some socks yeah oh, oh my god god yeah it's it's awful but yeah i mean i guess again like to to refine what i was trying to say too i think the big distinction is that it's sort of like in in vidor's like as you said like the, this populist depiction right we begin with this like this depiction of like class and the differences but but ultimately it's like the war is like this melting pot that takes all these different people. The guy with the really, you know, the rich guy with the big house and the family and the bartender from the Bronx or whatever, you know, and this bolt catcher from God knows where. He looks like a fucking alien, you know, slim, right? And <laughs> and when they put on their uniform the and they get there in the, the front, army. like those differences like melt away, you know? Whereas for the Italians and, and specifically, you know, for Monticelli here, like those distinctions and those differences that you were describing even earlier, like all those like divisions 
are there the entire time and we're like hyper aware of them. Like they never really disappear in this place. If anything, they, they, they get highlighted, those different statuses and stations of life that, that people exist in by this conflict. You know, it's, 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 it, war separates us, I think, more than it brings us together, right? Like Vidor is sort of like, look at all this suffering that brought us all together. And, and Monticelli is like, look at all this suffering that just continues to keep us apart, to keep us away from truly seeing like that, that we are all in this shit show together. Yeah. And, you know, I, one thing I want to bring up uh, about, about certainly the ending of La Grande Guerra, like, Ultimately, our two guys, and as you mentioned, Andy, they've they've become like best buddies, but they're still bickering constantly. They're still at each other's throats throughout the whole movie, but they have, you know, the the shared mission of of staying alive. And so uh, another sort of like, you know, battle is kind of being like set up and the pieces are moving around and and they're supposed to get a bunch. They, well, they're supposed to deliver a message and then like get some barbed wire. Uh, and, you know, they they ultimately decide to, you know, take a take a nap in a, in a barn, yeah. you know, deal with it in the AM. Right. Cause they didn't have the, they didn't have the stakes for the, the barbed wire, you know, they had to have all, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. It's a big joke until they wake up and they've missed a company move. And now they're in Austrian territory. And so a farm that was when they went to bed in control uh, of the Italians uh, is now in control of the Austrians. And that's when the movie also takes a really strange turn where we get all these scenes of the Austrians unsubtitled deliberate choice by Monticelli to alienate the Italian audience and just go like, now we're with these guys as our heroes are trying to sneak away in Austrian uniforms. And, Bad you know, play. Yeah, it, <laughs> it doesn't go great, you know? And, and ultimately, uh, they have to decide in that moment, right, what to, to say to the Austrian officer. And they're basically like, you know, I don't want to say if they said something different, they would have lived. Uh, but they deliberately say something that will get themselves killed, right? This final act of, of I guess, you know, quote-unquote heroism because they do protect, you know, the plan of the Italian right. army, right? Their one sacrifice this whole, I mean, they've sacrificed a lot, but they've been just like, you know, skirting responsibility at every turn. And in this moment, they almost flub it. They almost give the whole plan away, but they don't. And then they're immediately executed, right in front of us with no ceremony no at all. No fanfare, yeah. No fanfare at all. And it is fucking brutal, right? Again, like, the 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 main... Well, I mean, they're both essentially, like, main characters, but, like, uh, Musaka, right, who has been, like, we've been with him since the very beginning of this movie. And if this is, like, his grand moment, like, Monticelli captures it in a fucking, like cold long shot yeah, like through, through a window, window right where we just see him like marched out yeah. and then literally just shot dead right just there another ant yeah the no war, close you know? up on his yeah. face of, of his agony or his defiance in that moment just yeah l mirroring 
the execution that they saw from like the train window earlier in the film. Like, yeah, you're just this guy. Yeah, in it's you know, it's a really powerful sequence and it's really all about, you know, this idea that like in that moment these guys like made a decision as opposed to dying at any other point in the war which would have been on someone else's order uh for this or that or the other, it would have been an accident, it would have been something stupid. Here they can at least go like kill me bitch you know <laughs> yeah. and that's essentially what they do and and i learned in in researching monicelli some some dark shit his father who was a literary critic and outspoken sort of critic of the fascists uh you know had his life ruined by the fascists you know blacklisted etc as a as a journalist uh and committed suicide during the second world war and then Monticelli, at age 95, jumped out of a window at the hospital, terminally sick with prostate cancer, committed suicide. Uh, and when you think about both of those things in relation to this film, I mean, it's like, again, it is that existential sort of thing, like this you know, the choice that they're making in a certain regards as this like affirmative choice in a hellish world or whatever. Well, the, you know, the, you know the, the Romans believed that the ultimate way to beat the fates was actually by committing suicide, hey. by, by taking your life, uh, you know, at your chosen moment. Yeah, I think that's what it's all about, you know. Yeah, but they and again, I think it's important to recognize that they kind of do it as you said in in slightly different ways yes. too, you know. That is true to their characters like throughout the film. Yes, Busaka is in that moment almost more, you know, offended by the way the Austrians are treating him like a lower class. Yeah. He like, makes like fun of them for being Italian. Yeah piece of shit and so he's just like you want to see what an italian is i'll show you motherfucker i'll show you i've read bakun and don't don't fuck with me motherfucker and and yeah you know uh yo yo yeah god what's his name yo yo yakavachi yakavachi yeah he's like basically like just crying the whole time but still yes in his own way is going out on his terms which of course is to just be true to himself a sniveling fucking coward <laughs> to the very end <laughs> But yeah, I think, you know, and I think you're you're on to onto something too with the big parade, which is yeah, I mean, it's a Hollywood film. Like it it ultimately is gonna sort of pull back and end on that romantic note, which is sort of like I was reading Raymond Duryat's piece on on the big parade, and that's sort of his reading. He's like well, yeah, war, you know, maybe war is justified if you get this nice French wife, right? You know, ultimately. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, it's not a bad point. You know, not that war is justified, but like, hey, you dealt with it and you got the wife, you know? And that's a very American American sort of like take on, on the war, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, the idea as well that like, you know that you've seen in a you see in, in a lot of American war films and 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 American war films that sometimes I feel are are mistakenly categorized as sort of like an anti-war film where you know you show us carnage and suffering and violence, but ultimately we are in so many of these films still left with this overriding message that but you know what all that made us who we are, you know? It makes us stronger as Americans moving forward into our century, you know? So many films 
do that. And I, I don't want to totally say that that Vidor is doing that here. But again, I, I, I and I admire this film greatly. I think this is an amazing film. Um, but I still don't know if I would categorize it as purely like an, an uh, you know, a, a, as I think grand or grande uh, uh, an, uh, a total outright condemnation of the very nature, the very essence of all war. Well, it still has to appeal to the uh, American public. To literally everyone. <laughs> Strings true for a lot of war films made post-war, um, not just in America, but in, but in some other countries as well, but I, I think particularly in America, that there's this element of, you know, these films being seen as a way to help soldiers come to terms with their traumatic episodes, that there's this idea of sort of saying to, to a generation of men who, who are still probably going through the psychological traumas of that experience to say like, it's okay. You're okay. Like we're okay now, you know, like a, a means of sort of uh, helping with PTSD obviously at a time when they didn't call it PTSD, but, but you know, the longest day, it morale. <laughs> it's like, look at the way they, look at the way they captured, uh, the, the, the Omaha beach landings. Yeah. There's some violence there, but not nearly the level of violence that soldiers went through because they didn't want to traumatize that generation of, of men who have just come back 15 years prior from that experience, you know, where then, few years later, Sam Fuller's like, there the fucking water was red with blood, you know? <laughs> like, it was awful. Like, it was goddamn awful. You can't even imagine it. The Longest Day didn't show you how bad it was. And then eventually even Spielberg, 50 fucking years later, being like, you want to see all the blood and guts? I'll show you all the blood and guts, right? But but films, I think, made a little bit closer to the experience. They almost have this, this sense of trying to be like, well, we don't want to like have guys have a fucking meltdown in the middle of the goddamn movie theater or start walking around America going, what the hell was it all for? Did you see, did you see the big parade? <laughs> Said we're all yeah. saps and suckers. Yeah. You know? yeah. like, Louis B. Mayer is calling us idiots. Yeah, why know? are we paying taxes? <laughs> you know, fuck. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the ending of the big parade is just spectacularly romantic. You know, it, it doesn't have like a biting conclusion that um i think world war one certainly earned for its its screen depictions but r.i.p to slim and bull though for real yeah, for real truly and that other guy we didn't mention that other poor guy that just comes at a certain point to tell him to pipe down do you notice that that guy gets killed yeah, very gets, unceremoniously yeah. oh he does yeah, <laughs> yeah glasses guy yeah. Or whatever. yeah he like crawls over to just be like hey guys keep it down and then he just gets fucking shot you know and they're just like right. what was that guy saying Fuck. There is still like some spectacular anger, at least on display, when considering the era. You know, I mean, when he's in the trenches and just like calling out to to the people who have killed Slim, and you know, just just saying that war is just worthless, and he calls all of them like goddamn bastards. The fact that it says "goddamn" in an inner title from a 1925 yeah. film, you know, that was probably as far as they could go in terms of like that type of enraged 
you know, anti-war sentiment. But no, of course, yes, it does end with the two of them reuniting. We have the beautiful image of Melisande. It's just like a painting. She's she's uh, attending to the farm. She's got the plow and she sits and she's chewing gum. She's still thinking about Jimmy. And then here comes Jimmy on the crest of the hill, hobbling his way down with his new leg and his cane. And he's just making his way down there. And it's just, it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's stunning. It made me cry. And then all I could think, it's the same thing as Dave Kerr kind of addresses. He's like, imagine if you could hear them. This this would probably stink. <laughs> it just wouldn't have that same power, that perfect silent film way of evoking romance like that. It's grande. Yeah. It's grande. If we had heard her go, Jimmy, while she was like, Melisande, it would have just, it would have been so corny, you yeah. know? But it's just when we can just witness it and see the beauty of the images and that rhythmic cutting, them seeing each other alive, it's just, that's cinema. You know, it also made, in a strange way too, it 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 actually made me think about George Romero, friend of the pod, George Romero's Night of Living <laughs> Dead and the great opening of that where I was like looking at him like hobbling in that long shot, you know, where you don't even, you know, obviously we know it's Jim, but it's also like, he's so far away. He's really just almost like this, like this just hobbling silhouette. silhouette, Right. And I was thinking about the great opening of, of night of the living dead, where, you know, in the foreground, the two characters are talking in the graveyard and just way off in the distance, you see that silhouette just shuffling, basically like (laughs) hobbling, in a long shot in a very similar way. And I was thinking like, Romero probably saw the big parade and was like, you know, that's kind of eerie. Like just seeing this like shuffling, hobbling figure in a long oh, yeah. shot, you know? Yeah. I thought it was like unbelievably beautiful when they, you know, collided and finally saw each other. But I too found it somewhat unsettling and almost gothic to see his silhouette atop that hill moving the way he is. It does have a unique effect. The ending of, uh, the Great War is one big joke as, uh, yeah. you know, they they notice after all this action, you know, the guys in the battalion, uh, they notice that our, the two guys aren't there and they say, uh, even this time, those two slackers got away easy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Rip. And they're yeah. just like dead in a barn somewhere. Yeah. Again, yeah. like the yeah. emptiness of the gesture, right? Like they finally did something good for everyone else. And like they're going to be remembered as fucking piece yeah. of shit shirkers, you know? Yeah. Outrageous. Well, yeah, we did it. We Ooh. we survived the trenches. We went through it. hell. This guy didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Oh, and then I just thinking about the images of hell that image from la grande guerra where it's like the donkey the cart and there's just a dead man it's like a ghost cart that's just <laughs> moving through donkey's moving on its own it's just slumped over oh my god yeah i mean both of these films have images i'm never gonna forget that's you know a signal of a successful world war one movie i would say but i guess andy you know i know you're very studied when it comes to the Great War and the depictions of the Great War on screen. But if you had, if you were hard pressed, World War I, to tell people one film, where should they go to for a true depiction of World War I, a singular Great War film, what would it be? Well, 
look, I, I, I don't want to be a jerk here, but I, 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 I got to highlight more than one. I got to highlight <laughs> at least two, really. Um, and, and simply because uh, I think they are two criminally underrated films. They're films that, that I mean, there's obviously some much more well-known ones, right? Yeah. So, so I'm going to highlight two that I think uh, deserve a lot more attention. One of them would be uh, a film by the great Joseph Losey, a film called King and Country. And I mm. think it's it's not a very well-known one because it, it covers very similar territory to uh, Kubrick's Paths of Glory because it's essentially about a court-martial taking place in the middle of the trenches. Uh, there's a soldier who suddenly in the midst of all this, this, this blood and death decides he's just going to walk home. In the middle of the Western Front, this British soldier starts to try to walk back to England. And of course, he's picked up by the authorities and they put him under court-martial. And the one and only Dirk Bogard is assigned to defend him. Uh, it is a it is a a frustrating, maddening, absurd exploration of you know again I think the injustice of war and the 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 circus of justice that that the the officers and the people who perpetrated this crime against humanity are are attempting to sort of like play out. Uh, I think King and Country is amazing. I think uh, anybody that that is a fan of Paths of Glory or just you know interested in that kind of thing or a fan of Joseph Losey should definitely check out King and Country because also just Losey fucking rocks. And then the other one is another Italian film by friend of the pod Francesco. Rossi, who made a great movie called Uomini Contra, or Many Wars Ago, starring uh, the 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 man from Zabriskie Point, Mark Frechette, isn't that his name? Yeah, Mark Frechette plays a, a young Italian officer sent into similar territory as uh, La Grande Guerra, the battle between the Italians and the Austrians. Uh, it's also got the great John Maria Volante in there. It is a nasty, angry, it is, it is a, a more hysterical, and I mean like, you know, uh, um, not in a funny way, depiction yeah. of a lot of the, the same kind of, I think, spirit of La Grande Guerra. It's, 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 uh, it is, got also some of the most like surreal imagery of battle. One uh, nasty, horrifying uh, uh, depiction of death after another. And essentially everyone just loses their minds. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great, great film. So those would be two that I don't think get talked about a lot that I think deserve a lot more attention. Well, it was uh, my topic. topic. I think Ryan, you're up next. What do you got? Yes, yes. Well, this past weekend, Molly and I um, we did a lot of driving. I love driving. I love being on the open road. I'm at home on the road, as they say. I've driven uh, quite a lot. It's very relaxing for me. I love just 
hitting the pavement, driving across the country. And I was thinking, you know, we had never, we haven't really done specifically like a road movie theme. And it, it be, maybe because it almost feels too easy, right? The road movie that is just like such a canonical type of cinema. But I was thinking, right, it's it, in many respects, it's a very American type of cinema, the myth of the American road. And I've traversed a lot of American roads. And I know all of us have seen a lot of American road cinema, so I thought, why don't we hit the roads someplace else? Why don't we take a look at some international highways? Why don't you take me on some foreign roads? So I was thinking of like, you know, great films, you know, you got Wim Wenders, he's doing that all the time in Germany, and we see it pop up all over the place. It's the way the genre can kind of just obviously fit anywhere where there are roads. So the topic for next week is, uh, give me some road movies from countries that aren't the United States of America. Simple as that. International roads. International roads. Foreign roads take me home. <laughs> I've never been. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Hey, allora. Senti un po', visto che parli così, mi te disi proprio un bel niente. Hai capito? Faccia de merda! Compromise! Hey, Pizza, what else? What else?